This episode of Reality Escape Pod is brought to you by Morty, Escape Tales, Buzzshot, and Patreon supporters like you. Buzzshot is customer satisfaction software for your escape room business. They offer an assortment of pre and post game features, including robust waiver management, branded team photos, and streamlined review management for Yelp, TripAdvisor, Google Reviews, Morty, and more. Toby from Containment Zone had this to say about Buzzshot. We wanted a way to capture client data, have an app that shares photos both directly with the client but also to our social media pages. And more importantly, it drives footfall to our review sites, specifically TripAdvisor and Facebook. Since using BuzzShot, our review numbers have grown significantly. Streamline your marketing and grow your business at buzzshot.com slash repod. That's R-E-P-O-D. When booking your free trial to get 20% off your first three months. Details in the show notes. Welcome to the Reality Escape Pod, your lifeline when you need a getaway from the real world. I'm David Spira, alongside my co-host, PG Law. Together, we're exploring immersive gaming from all angles, and we'll be joined by guests who really know their stuff. Each episode this season, we will be interviewing escape room creators from different countries. Except for this one, doing something slightly different. Today's guest is from Laguna Hills, California. We're joined by David Spigner. Since 2008, David has served as president and CEO of Bodeborg, the Swedish-turned-American company that pioneered quests that blend intellectual and physical challenges in an escape room meets amusement park-like environment. Bodeborg has eight facilities in Sweden and one each in Ireland, Switzerland, and the United States. Welcome, David. Thank you. Very happy to be here. We're thrilled to have you. I'm so happy we finally got to have you on because David has been telling me about Bodeborg for years and uh, we finally got to go play at Recon this year and I just loved it. Cool. So yeah, we hosted our convention this year in Boston and bust everyone out to Malden to mm-hmm. play Bodeborg as part of the festivities. How many people did you take? Can I ask? Yeah, about 250. Wow. Fantastic. Thank you. Yeah, we had uh, we had a lot of people having fun running around Bodeborg, Malden. So another thing that I found while I was researching for this interview is I've been a longtime fan of Bodeborg. We went there pretty early after they opened up outside of Boston. And I noticed on the Bodeborg Wikipedia page that we're actually citation number one for the explanation of what Bodeborg was. So that was a, was a fun little thing to find out. Oh, cool. Thank you so much. Let's start there because I have to imagine that many of our listeners haven't had the opportunity to play at Bodeborg. What is Bodeborg and how does it work exactly? That is literally the billion dollar question. And it's frankly a complicated one to to answer. I can tell you in short that Bodeborg is perhaps from a biased perspective, the most fun you can possibly have engaging physically in play. So we call it reality gaming. That's the space that we call it. Real people trying to conquer real life like games. And we like to mimic 
real life. And so we call it questing. Every day is a quest. You don't know what's going to happen next. And so it's a series of tasks, not puzzles, that you have to survive, just like you would do in life. And I guess the best explanation might be, it's like taking scenes out of a movie. It's kind of like we design a movie in brief and we put them in physical rooms, which we call challenges. And it's a sequence of challenges that you try and conquer. Like a video game, if you conquer the first challenge, you get to move to the next and so on and so forth until you get to the last challenge or room. And if you survive that one, then you're going to get a simple low tech reward at Bodeborg. We're very high tech otherwise, but that final reward is purposefully low tech. And so that's what it is. And one of our facilities will have up to 25 of these quests. And that's what it is. So you're playing it like that. If you fail at any point, you're expunged, if you will, (laughs) (laughs) from the quest. You have to leave instantly and start over. It's not like a video game in that way, where often in a video game, you go to the next level, right? Yeah, there's no save point here. You got to start over from the beginning. (laughs) You start over from the beginning. You don't get to redo that last challenge and start from there. You go back to the beginning. If you fail, fine. You get kicked out, you start over, or you pick a new quest. And that's kind of the way it works. And when you buy admission, you're buying admission to a larger facility for a set number of hours. And so while you're in there, you can go and play any number of a few dozen quests and you can bounce around at will. You jump into one, oh, I really like this. I'm going to go and spend the next 40 minutes trying to master it. Or You go into one and you say, oh my, this is very much not for me. And then you bounce out and you find something that is for you. Yeah, that's an interesting concept. We call it quest hopping. And we don't sell a quest. So perhaps an analogy would be going to the movies. We're very familiar in almost any country with going and paying for and watching one movie. That's not how Bodeborg works. When you come to Bodeborg, up to 25 quests are available to you. You pay one price and you can go to as many as you want, as often as you want during the time that you have at Bodeborg. So we, that's why we call it quest hopping. And it's a massive component of our strategic offering for our guests. The way that I have come to describe it to people is it's a lot like playing a kind of Nintendo entertainment system, the NES era of video games, but in real life where the game doesn't really tell you how to play it. You go in, you're the player and you start interacting. And then if you bump into a Goomba and it kills you, then you start back over at the beginning of the level and you just learned a thing. You just learned if I walk into those things, I die. So then you try and jump on it and you say, oh, wow, I I just progressed. It died. I didn't. I just learned another thing. And you keep going through it learning your way progressively until you have developed some amount of mastery. Yeah, I get that. I get that. So in the series of challenges that you have to survive, you don't know how much time you have. You don't know what to do. You certainly don't know yet who should do what on your team, because you can't do this as an individual. You can't even do it as a couple. You need a team of three to five. And we do that again, by strategic design, a clever team is going to figure out one that not everyone should do everything and that there may be a wise allocation of whom should do what. And they're going to figure out if you're truly clever, that it's an iterative learning process, that you're going to fail. 
the odds of you failing are hundred percent. And the trick is to determine what you've learned in that failure and to apply those learnings the next time in a persistent effort. And that's how life works. And that's how questing works. So there is a purposeful strategic corollary to how we live our lives and how we design quests. So you took ownership of Bodeborg in 2008, and Mm -hmm. we'll get to that process shortly, but it was founded in 1995, more than a decade before escape rooms emerged. What was the origin story of Bodeborg? Yeah, I'm not sure that the legal founding was 1995, but it was certainly mid to late 1990s. And it was founded by a group of four Swedes in the northern part of Sweden, about 700 to 800 kilometers north of Stockholm in a little place called Torpsarmer, which is right near a slightly larger town, about 90,000 people called Sundsvall. And I believe as the story goes, the founders were, one of them certainly was an engineer, chemical engineer, I believe, and he had lost a job. And the others, I think, were in transition of some type as well. And they sat down at some shop somewhere in this very small town. I like to joke that the town of Tarpsarmer has more cows than people. I literally think there's only about 800 people in that town and probably about 8,000 cows. <laughs> it's, but it's gorgeous. It's absolutely one of the most beautiful places I've ever seen in the world. But they sat down and decided, what are we going to do next? And someone came up with the remarkable idea, an idea that I think most people would run away from. And they simply said, what if we could make video games real? That's it. It was that simple. And they got lucky because there was an old, it used to be a mental hospital and it sits on a hill and there are two large buildings in Tarpsarmer. It's the biggest thing in Tarpsarmer. There's nothing else that would even match the enormity of those two buildings. And the city basically gave them those buildings for free. They were going to tear them down. And that's where they built the first board. Uh, a series of fortunate incidents. <laughs> yeah, a series of fortunate incidents. That's right. I have read online, and I don't know whether this is true. I'll, I'll be honest with you. There's not a lot about Bodeborg's history to be found on the internet. Mm-hmm. Believe me, I have spent a lot of time looking. <laughs> One of the things that I read is that it was the result of a government project to find new ideas in the context of rural development in northern Sweden. Is there any truth to that? Not that I'm aware of, no. Interesting. We're debunking myths on the internet. Yes, you are. I'm shocked to learn that I read something on the internet that isn't true. The story that (laughs) I just told you is the origin story. You've made it when there's urban legends about your company, I suppose. We're just going to keep clarifying things. Yeah, let's do that. Because I had that 1995 date that seemed really certain as well. I will ask you... Another question that I've been asked many times, and that is, what does Bodeborg mean? Okay, so that hill that had those two large buildings back in the mid to late 1990s, just south of there is a small town called Boda. It's very small, and I mean small. The road that you drive on, to you you go through Boda to get to Bodeborg. Bodeborg is technically not in Boda. But when I drive, I used to live there. So when I drove through there, it would take maybe 15 seconds, maybe 20 seconds to drive through <laughs> through Boda. So blink and you miss it, Tam. Yeah. And so to this day, I don't know why they chose Boda, but I know 
why they chose Borg. Because Borg is sort of a Swedish name for castle or mansion, large edifice, if you will. And that's what they had, right? They had these two massive, we still have them. That first Bodeborg is still one of our active Bodeborg locations. And so Boda, Borg, it's where it comes from. And I loved that name when I first heard it. I love the Swedish origin of it. I believe that it's marketable globally and there was no way we were going to change that name. Albeit, I have been asked countless times to change that name to fit other markets. It's a catchy name. I'm a fan of alliteration in names and titles. Same. I think to most of us, it's a meaningless set of words that sound good together. And so you get to pour in whatever definition you want. And any of us who've been to Bodeborg, we know exactly what it is, even if we don't know what the words mean. Yeah, I love the uniqueness of it. You come in without expectations of what it's supposed to be. Also, I think when it's what to American ears sounds like a nonsense name. Well, I look at it like, what's a Yahoo? What's an Apple? <laughs> what's a Google? Exactly. <laughs> and from a marketing perspective, I frankly think it's genius. I agree with you. We can mold and shape it into anything we want. And we can maintain a competitive uniqueness that is second to none. So how did you end up in Bodeborg's orbit, or rather, how did Bodeborg end up in yours? I think it was a little bit of both, actually. So in 2007, I was an executive at a commercial bank here in the Southern California area. But I had been looking for an entrepreneurial activity for a long time, something that I would transition to. And I hadn't been very successful doing it. But that year, my family and I are accustomed to taking what we call cocations, cultural vacations. And most of these cocations are outside of the United States because we like learning about integrating with different cultures. And so we were taking trips all over the place. And that year, we went to Egypt, Sweden, and England uh, on one wow. trip. Wow, that sounds like a good time. Yeah. So Sweden was the second stop. And I looked for businesses at that time, wherever I was going. And so in Sweden, this is funny. My wife had rented a second house on a farm in an area about 150 kilometers south of Stockholm. And so that's where we went. And I remember because I wasn't a fan of it because it only had one bathroom. In it. <laughs> <laughs> and so the minimalism, I wasn't a big fan of at the time. And I was worried that my family of six wasn't going to fit in this thing so well. And because of the one bathroom is the reason why we own Bodeborg today. That is literally <laughs> why we own Bodeborg. Because my oldest daughter, <laughs> love her to death, but she was 21 years old or something at the time. And she was very vain. And she went into that bathroom early morning, long before the rest of us woke up because she wanted to be sure that she got hot water and could do her hair and everything. And she, she wasn't encumbered by lack of resources in the bathroom. And so she went in there and she just drained the hot water. And because of that, my family woke up and they were complaining. They were yelling at her. And I said, look, maybe there's a mistake here. Maybe something's broken. I'll go ask the owner of the farm whose large mansion type house was just down the road. So I walked down, knocked on the door and I said, look, hot water's gone. Is there any way we can get it back? And she said, you know what? 
she didn't really drain it. Sometimes it goes off for these various reasons. We'll take care of it. And then she asked, what are you guys doing today? My wife had this remarkable schedule. I don't get involved with that schedule because I'm a smart husband. Sounds like David. (laughs) I I just go where she tells us to go. That's all I do. And so I said, well, my wife has this thing planned. We're going to see some king and queen's castle somewhere. I have no idea, really. And she said, you should go to, listen carefully, Boo the Boy. (laughs) And I said, what? <laughs> she said, Buddha boy. And she said, oh, she said, maybe in English you might say Buddha Borg. I said, okay, what's that? And when she described it, it sounded like puzzle solving and an arcade. And my initial response was, oh no, we don't want to do that. We didn't really come here to do something like that. And she said, no, you don't understand. I'm not explaining it properly. I really am not. This is the most fun thing you will ever do. It really isn't puzzles. It really isn't like an arcade. You should go. And it's only 10 kilometers Southeast of here. And so I said, well, I'll go tell my family what you've suggested and they'll make a decision. And I have to admit my decision as I left was no, we're not going. (laughs) But I did what I said I would do. I explained it to the family and I was outvoted five to one. We're going to go check this out. So we go there and it turns out that it's in a small town. It's called Oxalasund. And I think Oxalasund has maybe 10,000 people who live in the town. It's an elderly town. I'd say the average age there is maybe 40 to 50 in that range average. And you certainly would not have guessed that there would be any type of leisure type activity here. I think the big business there is a giant steel plant that makes steel to sell to China. And so it looked very residential, a lot of apartments, and we were driving through the apartments. And I was angry, honestly, now, because the farm lady had told us 10 kilometers and we must have driven 60 kilometers. It was a long (laughs) way. And I said, this is way out of the way. And it's in an apartment area. And so all of my business senses were flashing negative. And this is wrong. This is wrong. (laughs) We didn't have Google Maps or anything back then either, right? Yeah. And so we pull into this apartment complex. There's a huge apartment building in front of us. It looks a little dilapidated, really. How is your family reacting at this point? They're kind of excited. It's a mystery. It's almost like they're still bought into the adventure It is now an adventure. It's like a quest, really. And we don't know this at this point because we had to cross this gorgeous bridge to go into Oxilison and it had these flags on either side of the bridge. It was beautiful. Okay. So really, however this lands, you've gone off on an adventure. They're in a very good mood. They're looking around for where could this be because we're in the middle of these apartments and this has to be a mystery itself. It turns out that giant apartment building right in front of us was Odeborg. And that's what it was. It just looked like an apartment building. So my business sense told me, this is not right. We've made a huge mistake. (laughs) So we go inside and the bottom floor looks unimpressive entirely. And it's just an empty space. There's a reception counter. There's nothing more, maybe some picnic tables or something. And the lady comes up, she checks us in and she says, so you're going to go upstairs and do this thing. They called it Bonor. That's the Swedish word to it. And Bonor means a track. That's what they called it. There was no word questing at the time. And they showed us a terrible video. It was just horrible. And I didn't understand what the video was trying to tell us that we were going to be doing. And I'm getting more and more frustrated about this 
adventure that we're on. And then remember now I've got a family of six. So I've got my early twenties daughter. She's the oldest. I've got a 13, 14 year old daughter with us. I've got a 11 year old son and a 10 year old son. And so my 13, 14 year old daughter, her name is Sabina. And they bring out this guy, his name is Mane. And he looks like something right out of a model magazine. <laughs> he's in his early twenties. He's maybe six foot one, six foot two. He's got long flowing blonde hair and he comes out. I can see the wind blowing his hair back. <laughs> and I'm looking at my 13 year old daughter and she's like, <laughs> like, no, no. <laughs> Where's that glow coming from? It's so bright in here. <laughs> yeah. And he's supposed to take us upstairs and introduce us to Bonor, uh, the tracks. And so we let that happen. I'm very concerned about this now. <laughs> and is this the original location that was originally a mental hospital, you said? No, no. This okay, was okay. The, at the time, I think. Oxalison was the fifth location. This is July 2007. So they had expanded. So we get up there and we go into this, this quest called Balance. Balance, if you're in Sweden. That's the first quest I ever did, Balance. And <laughs> we go in there and we start doing this thing with a bowling ball. I won't describe that so much right now. But needless to say, my family and I are now like, what the heck is this? We have to get this right in order to get to the next one. So we start to get the concept a little bit. And Mane is there inside the quest with us, explaining it. His job is to stay with us until we get this concept, until we understand it. It doesn't take long. My kids and I understand it pretty quick. And now we send him off and I'm happy about that. <laughs> <laughs> and now we just go wild. We probably spent too much time on balance. It had three challenges, I remember. And we just spent over and over and over because we were intent on conquering it. And then we recognized, oh, we've got about 20 more of these things here. And guess what? We can go do any of them we want. And so that's what we started to do. And we just had a great time. So that's how we were introduced to Bodeborg. It's funny. When I went for the first time, the Malden location still had tough, tougher, toughest. And mm -hmm. We spent a lot of time on that until we got to toughest. And I realized that there is no point in my life where I ever had the upper body strength to complete that. Oh, you'd be surprised. But yes, it's very challenging on purpose. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. No, it's, it's impressive. And seeing yeah. someone else do it is really impressive. And that quest was designed in Bodeborg Oxalison, the one I just described to you. That's where it was designed. We're taking a moment to thank our sponsor, Morty. Morty is a free app for discovering, planning, tracking, and reviewing escape rooms and other immersive social outings. I believe in Morty so much that I have a stake in it as an advisor. BG, you're a little bit luckier than I am because Morty is based in your hometown and tests out all their new features there. I also know 
that you love yourself a good deal. You've never been shy about that. So why don't you share some of the things you've been enjoying that not all Morty users get to try out yet? Yeah, David, it's really awesome. They started releasing discount codes on Morty. So as you're searching for an escape room to play, you go and click on the game page, the company page, and you'll see it'll be marked with like a little coupon symbol and you scroll down and you can get coupons for anywhere from like $20 off total game, $10 off a certain booking. So I I just think it's a really great feature, especially if you want to attract customers to come play your game at off hours. Maybe you have a coupon that's only available during the day on Wednesday. I just think it's, it's a really good idea to draw in customers that may not have come otherwise. Yeah, and if you are an escape room company looking to offer discounts, maybe drive some new traffic to your location, hit up Morty, message them and let them know you're interested in offering discount codes through their app. You can learn more at mortyapp.com slash repod. That's R-E-P-O-D to sign up and get a special badge for our listeners. Link and details in the show notes. So how did you go from accidentally stumbling upon this great family vacation spot to wanting to become involved in the business? First of all, we had an enormous time to my chagrin. because <laughs> I, I, <laughs> so You were committed initially to this not being a great time. I thought it was going to be a disaster, honestly, yes. And <laughs> and. It wasn't without costs beyond monetary costs because the way it was designed back then wasn't very well. So there were screws coming out of the floors and things. And in a different quest, my wife, she went in barefoot, I remember, and she was on a beam. She was, if you've been to Boston, they have jungle, they have beams in the first yep. part of jungle. So there were beams like that in one of the quests there in 2007. Balance beams. Right. And she was on them and she, slipped off and her foot went right onto a bolt that was, I don't know, maybe quarter inch sticking out of the floor and it went right through her foot. Oh my gosh. Uh, So, and she began to bleed and then they, they took care of it. So you ask the question, how did the idea for a business first germinate? And so at that moment, when she was injured, I thought this is over. We're going to leave. And I had no inkling of a business at that point. We took her downstairs. The entire family went, they attended to her. They took care of her foot. And I said, okay, let's go to the car. That's me. Full dad mode. Full dad mode. And she looked at me and said, oh no, we're going back. (laughs) And I went, what? And my kids were like, yeah, dad, we're not leaving here. We're going back. And I went, what am I missing? There's something going on. That's when uh, <laughs> something's going on here. It's addictive. <laughs> and we went back and we stayed until they closed. We stayed. Wow. So the wheels start turning in your head that this is actually a viable business. And like, how can I become involved or how can I bring it to the U.S.? I think viable business is a stretch for that moment in time. But <laughs> certainly... There's something here that I'm missing. That was in my mind for sure. And then the ride home, that's when things started to really click for me. 
because we left when they closed, we shut it down. We sat outside and ate ice cream and my family just couldn't stop talking about what they had just done. And so of course my wife had this schedule and we get in the car and we start driving back. This was an ugly car. It was a Eurovan and it was big and red and it stood out on the highway and I hated driving it. I remember that. And we're driving home and my wife and I are in the front. Of course, it's got bucket seats and all the kids are in the back. And from the far back, my oldest daughter, the one who at the time hated everybody and is beyond frugal. She's flat out cheap. And she only liked her boyfriend and didn't want to go on the trip because it separated her from her boyfriend. From back there, she said these words. And these are the words that got me thinking there's a business in there somewhere. She said, Dad. I will pay $20 or more, six times or more per year to go to a place like that. And I went, Ozzy, is that you? And she said, <laughs> yeah, because Ozzy's cheap. And Ozzy, my kids are all very well inclined academically. Ozzy, a little bit different. She, she was okay, but she wasn't excited about the academic world. And at Bodeborg, you don't have to be an intellectual, of course. But you have to want to be competitive a little bit and strive and, and achieve things, if you will. You have to engage your brain. It's not yeah. in a study sort of way, but it is fully mentally engaging. Yes, absolutely. And for her to say that both from a mental perspective and from a monetary perspective, if Ozzy would do this, anybody will do this. And that got me thinking. And one other thing happened before we arrived back to that little house on that farm. The family told my wife that they didn't want to do whatever she had on her schedule for the next two days. They wanted to go back to Bodeborg. And my wife accommodated. Two days later, Thursday, July 9th, 2007, we canceled everything and went back to Bodeborg. Okay. So how did you end up in the position that you were acquiring the entire business. So that day, July 9th, 2007, while we were questing again, I had mentioned that I wanted to talk to the owner. I didn't know what it was. I didn't know how the business was structured. And I really honestly didn't know the business. And that's probably the smartest thing I could have settled on that I didn't know what this was. Because I really didn't understand it. I understood more how to quest. Of course, they weren't calling it that at the time, but I understood how to do the process, but I'd never seen anything like that before anywhere. And I certainly didn't understand their operations model because there wasn't one. I had this idea that maybe there's a business in there. And so I wanted to talk to the owner and it turns out is a great guy. And he reminded me of Pee Wee Herman at the time. He was so energetic and lively and hi, how are you guys? But I hadn't met him yet, but we were up questing on that day. And I had told the attendant downstairs at reception that I wanted to speak to him. She said he wasn't coming in, but she would call him. So we went questing and about halfway through, maybe four hours in, we hear this message on the loudspeaker. And I swear to you, this is exactly what we heard. Will the Americans come down? Will the Americans come down, please? <laughs> I looked at my wife and my kids. I said, We're American. Are she talking about us? <laughs> and so we eventually assumed that she must be talking about us. And we went down and that's where we met the owner. It happened to be a franchisee. So I learned the business structure. We finished questing that day and he gave us directions where to meet him for ice cream. 
in a little town called New Xiaoping, right next to Aksalasan. So we met him there. The ice cream was served through a converted school bus. And we sat by the harbor and ate ice cream, and he told us all about the business. Okay. And that progressed into what? Full curiosity. I'm in full curiosity mode now. My wheels are turning. I'm starting to think this is so unique, so different. I remember to this day, there were people from five or six different countries in a little town called Oxilison, 150 kilometers south. Makes no sense. In a town of 10,000 people, they weren't kids. They were mostly adults. None of it made sense to me. And so I was just asking all kinds of questions. Some he could answer, some he couldn't. And I start thinking, you know, there's that old joke. Little boy and an old man walk up to a room and they open the door to the room and it's full of poop, floor to ceiling full of poop. So they can't go in because the poop's kind of spilling out of the door. It's it's higher than them. It's higher than the threshold of the door, but there's a shovel outside. And so the old man wants to leave. Who wouldn't want to get away from this room? The little boy picks up the shovel and the old man says, what are you doing? And the boy goes, I'm going to dig. And he goes, why? And the little boy goes, it's got to be a pony in there somewhere. Right, And that's exactly what I was thinking. <laughs> you gotta find that pony. <laughs> I was going to find that pony. There's a pony in there somewhere and <laughs> because it didn't look good on the outside to me. But honest to goodness, that's exactly how I felt. This just can't be what we experienced could not possibly. It was like I was in Narnia or something. So at that time, then what were you thinking of doing with the business or how were you thinking of becoming involved? There was no thought at the time for how to get involved because I didn't understand the business well enough. The one thing I did understand is that it didn't conform to any business structure or model that I had ever seen or heard of. And I had been a business consultant and and a C-level executive in places, and it just didn't conform to anything. That was very disturbing. The demographic, my goodness, any and everybody goes to Bodo Bork where we're taught, find a niche develop that niche, stick to the niche, target the niche. There's no niche. (laughs) So what do you do? So my first goal was simply to figure out what this is through the due diligence process, start a due diligence process. But guess what? If it turns out that it's no good, I don't have to buy it. So I simply started a due diligence process for the purpose of discovering what this is and if we wanted to make an offer. And through that due diligence process, the rest is history. I know of a billionaire who probably should have hired you for a couple of days. <laughs> yeah, <maybe>. <laughs> <laughs> so you emerged from the other end of this due diligence process. And what have you concluded? When we started that process, I had to first come to the conclusion about what the product was. And Bonor didn't make any sense. And the way they were structured at the time I guess the analogy for you would be, imagine a movie where every scene was disjointed and had nothing to do with the other. How attractive would that movie be? And the answer should be, not at all attractive. It would be a very disjointed, unpopular, unattractive movie. But these Bonors were not. They were fun. And I thought, but is that as fun as they could be? Could they be more fun? Is there something we're missing? I I said, well, movies don't do it that way. How about if we think about designing these the way you would write a movie and give it some structure? So give it a through line between the beginning and the end. Yeah. As opposed to thinking about puzzles or things like that. And so I simply started talking about that kind of thing. And I started talking about it with some of the owners who hadn't really 
thought about that, but one of them decided that he was going to do what I was talking about without asking me if he should do it. And so I think we started that due diligence in September, 2007. And by December, 2007, he had built this quest called Pirates. Oh, I've played Pirates. Yeah. And you've played the Pirates too. That's what he built. And he built it in Oxalisund. And it was so, this is where I knew we had a cultural problem because he built Pirates and he calls me and he says, I built the quest based on what you were talking about. I said, what? Because he wanted me to buy the company. And I said, what did you do? And he said, it's pirates. And he showed me pictures of it. I was sitting here in California. So I went to Sweden to see it. And when I walked up there, there was this full life-size poster of Johnny Depp as Captain Jack (laughs) 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 in front of it. And I said, you can't do that. (laughs) He goes, why not? I said, there are these things called trademark laws. You you can't put Captain Jack there. But when I walked in and he had really captured the essence of reality, because I talked about reality right away. Somehow I knew that's where we had to go. And so when you walked into the first challenge of pirates, it had a smell and pirates was so different. He had really captured what I had envisioned. It didn't have paint on the wall to describe a pirate-like environment. He had real hardwood floors, like a floor of a ship. He had real barrels. It was more real, where the rendition that I first was introduced to just a few months earlier was just paint on the wall to depict the environments. But this brought it more to life. The floor even had a particular smell to it. So now we had another sense involved and he did that by accident. That wasn't on purpose, but it had a (laughs) huge effect. And I thought, wow, look at this. And then we noticed something huge. The guest numbers went through the roof. Interesting. His weekend guest numbers just spiked and we went, oh, okay, we're onto something here. And that's how that got started. Not dissimilar from the progression of escape rooms as well, from this very rudimentary kind of blunt instrument to something that was looking to convey more and do more and engage more senses and change the way that you think about yourself in the space through narrative and experiencing story. Absolutely. Okay. So this concept that you had suggested through research and through the due diligence process and through conversation with them gets tested. It works. What happened next? We started experimenting with other dimensions. He was willing to experiment. He really wanted us to acquire the company. And so he was willing to use his location to experiment with things. And so we started experimenting with pricing because I like to joke at that time, there was a price for everything. If you had a golden retriever, they had a special price for that (laughs) for you to enter Bodeborg at the time. It was just crazy. And so I said, no, let's make this more simple. And that's where the current price. Sorry, you're serious. Like you could pay to bring your dog. No, I'm not serious. Okay. (laughs) Just making sure. (laughs) But almost if you had a grandma and a grandpa, they had a special price and the kids had a special price and everybody had a special price and they would discount it in various ways, depending on what you with your family, with a company or whatever. And I just thought it was too complicated. And so we tried something new. We simplified it. He tried it. It worked. Numbers spiked again. And then I start talking about different qualities of quests. And the analogy would be blockbuster movie versus B-level, C-level movie, so on and so forth. And I started describing that. And he said, let's try the blockbuster type. And he went off and built this quest called Rimferdin. 
That's the Swedish word, Rudimferden, which basically means something along the lines of space travel. And that's still in Oxalison today. And my goodness, you talk about real, the feel of real, the coldness of a spaceship, the metal, the rivets, and that's all there in Rudimferden. And his numbers just kept on going up. (laughs) (laughs) When I saw that dynamic, David, I knew there's a pony in there, a big one. And (laughs) then I could start to talk to people that I knew about it. And I put together a team and there was no question we were going to buy the company. Actually, I shouldn't say there was no question. There was one question. This is now 2008. And we know that we're about to go into a global recession. So that was the one concern. We're about to go into a global recession. We're not going to be able to necessarily expand this at that time. But then I feel like I had another very shrewd epiphany, which was we've got so much to learn about this thing anyway. We don't really know. There's no model. There's no example of how to operate this thing or what the operations practices should be. They certainly don't know. It's been all luck for them. They have no idea of what they're doing or why it's working. They knew none of that. They just knew that this basic concept had some traction. But we knew we had to figure out how to do it. And I knew that was going to take some time. And I thought, we'll just invest the two or three years with me living in Sweden pretty much to do that. And that's what happened. Wow. I mean, and this was what, like eight years before the advent of escape rooms? There really was nothing like that. 2007 was scrap. Yeah. So it was around the same time. Five Wits exists in Boston. Scrap is just emerging in Japan Bodeborg has been messing around with this for a decade at this point. That is absolutely correct. You scoop this up after running a whole bunch of experiments and realizing that there is a lot more opportunity to expand on these ideas and better optimize the business and the experience and produce something that people will want to keep coming back to even more than this core concept, which was already fairly attractive. Yeah. And I'll tell you, there, there are two other factors. Obviously those experiments worked and that was really impressive and moved us in the direction of acquisition. But what really solidified it were two other huge factors. One of them was the demographic itself. And that based on my business background was very concerning that there didn't seem to be any focus on who was attracted to Bodeborg. And so it wasn't until I recognized that was a plus that I got really excited that because of that broadness, if we can manage it, if we can sustain it, if we can exploit it, we'd have a massive business opportunity in front of us. But that's not what we're taught. It was a little concerning on that front. To me, having worked, I'm a consultant in my regular life and I've worked with a lot of business consultant types and it is rare to work with someone who is a business consultant type who is both able to recognize that something is different and that that's okay and that's worth trying to figure out what that difference is instead of trying and figuring out how do you ram it into one of the models that pre-existed? Like, how do you force it into that model? I'm really respecting what I'm hearing from you because that is not a typical business consultant type reaction to different. Mm. Yeah. And then the second thing that I noticed was the cultural diversity. So in Oxalison on that very first day, July 7th, 2007, 
it did not escape me that there were people from Germany there. There were people from the Netherlands there. I think there was a family from Japan there. And we were Americans there. And I was like, that's not normal, especially given where it was. So I think you're 100% right, David. This is something that I continue to think about today. I'm not the first executive who saw Baudelaire at all. I know that. Every one of the prior ones before me didn't see this. Too raw, too rough, too unfinished, too unfamiliar. That's probably the biggest thing. Way too unfamiliar. Nothing to compare it to. No structure. You would do like the grandpa in the joke. You wouldn't pick up the shovel. You'd walk away. (laughs) And that's what most people did. And I knew this was extraordinarily special, that most people would never understand it. And most importantly, I knew that I didn't understand it. That's critical. But I knew there was a pony in there somewhere. So at this point, it sounds like this is where you pull the trigger. Yes. With a commitment that over the next two, three years, we were going to take that shovel (laughs) and find and and (laughs) develop and feed that pony, nurture that pony. I'm guessing you form a company Mm -hmm. in the United States, and then that company acquires the mothership in Sweden. We buy everything, yes. Escape Tales is a tabletop escape room series with a focus on strong story and puzzles. Their games have weight and atmosphere, and the decisions you make along the way change the outcome. They are each crafted by the folks behind Lock Me and the Escape Room World Championship. They really know escape rooms and love them, and it shows in their product. Escape Tales feels about as close to a real-life escape room as you can get on the tabletop. Children of Wormwoods is the third game in the Escape Tales series. It was published in 2020. It's available in 11 languages, and it explores a different sort of narrative than the previous games. This one is more in the Dungeons & Dragons sort of realm of fantasy. It has more than seven hours of gameplay, and it also is divided up into multiple parts. So you're not playing seven hours all at once unless you want to. Also offers new character development options and so much branching narrative. What's been really cool about reviewing all three games at once is seeing how much they've iterated through the process. If you think that you will play all three games, I highly recommend that you play it in the order that they were created. So I would start with Awakening, play Low Memory, and then end with Children of Wormwoods because they keep expanding on previous ideas. And frankly, I think they've improved it. If you're only going to play one game, though, I highly recommend you play with this. It's a little bit more complex, but I think it's much more rewarding. What's cool is that there's character development now. So before you would make decisions and in you didn't always feel like they impacted the character. 
in this game, the decisions you make really do affect your character stats. So it gives it a little bit of a role playing feel. I loved this game. I highly recommend you check it out. It makes a great gift. And in fact, we're putting it on the holiday gift guide because I just think anybody who likes escape rooms and puzzles will honestly love this game. You can buy any installment of the Escape Tales series at store.boardanddice.com. Board and Dice is now shipping from both the United States and the European Union, so your games will not get held up in customs. Use discount code ROOMESCAPEARTIST at checkout to receive a generous 25% off your purchase. Details in the show notes. Since you took over, what were the biggest things that you changed with the way that everything operated? Oh, we probably don't have enough time for that. Give me your top three. What a quest is. So Bonor disappeared, became quests. You removed tracks that required some amount of guidance mm. and replaced them with individual games that you can self-select into and bounce around. Well, they always had. That was there before. They were incredibly genius, in my opinion, about what they had designed. The core structure of Bodeborg was there before I came. I can't take credit for that. The original founders were, I'm going to say it again, I think they were genius in this. I don't think they knew they were genius, but they were. Help me understand what the difference between Bonor and Quest is. So Bonor is just a word. It kind of means track okay. and a series of things you do, so to speak. But that's exactly what a Quest is. And so I needed something that I could push globally and I can't push Bonor. So that's where Quest came from. And Quest is perfect. We think it's just brilliant. That's where that came. So what we call it was a big change, but then what it is, is a big change. So I guess the analogy there could be something like the first movies that were projected onto walls and were more stills than motion and soundless and all of that. That's what Bodeborg was when I found it and the Lumiere brother era, if you will, of filmmaking. Mm -hmm. And today it's maybe not quite where I want it to be in the near future, but it's a lot more like a modern movie, if you will, by analogy, right? So it has all the dimensions. And if I were in the movie business, which I'm not, of course, we certainly design quests in part in the way they do. But if I were in the movie business, I'd be thinking, how can I get touch and how can I get smell? and How can I get those kinds of things? And that's where we're at with Bodeborg. Yeah, sounds like a big difference was going from like a flat 2D painted set to a full dimensional movie mm -hmm. quality set with that you could touch and feel. Absolutely. And then our strategic direction is a massive change. There was none at the time. I am a strategist by background, by training. That's what I do. And I had to have one. I had to have one that made sense. And that came pretty quick to me. It was because I'm a huge Star Trek guy and I'm a huge Star Wars guy. And I don't know, are either of you Star Trek people? Yes. You are. So you know what a holodeck is, right? Yes. Great. So that's my end game. Okay. Got it. So you want people to basically go to this place and they can have, within reason, any adventure they want as real as we can make them. So reality gaming is what we call the space. A lot of people, and I've heard you guys on your shows, use the word immersive. We don't. We think it's reality gaming as juxtaposed to virtual. And we think those two diverge. And so my in strategic game, and I don't think I'll achieve this in my lifetime because you have to master E equal MC squared to do it. And I don't think we're quite there yet, but our whole strategic direction is ever more real. 
And that's what we're going to do with our quest. Ever more real. That's exactly where I'm taking it. Our technology development is headed that way. It's going to become more intensely headed that way. Everything we do is designed for ever more real. So on that subject, you have a few patents for control devices as well as game operation methods. What role do patents and intellectual property play in your business? That's a good question. So obviously the questing process itself is something that is special, very unique, and it is unique and proprietary to us. We like to keep it that way for as long as we can. Of course, understanding that there'll be spinoffs and people trying to do things similar. We've seen that for years. And so we're not so concerned about that. We actually hope some of them will be very successful. We think that might actually help us. So we're not actually frightened by that. I think that's a healthy and probably correct view. Just gives more credibility to the reality gaming business sector. Exactly. We're not afraid of our position in the sector. Think about this. I don't know that I squarely mentioned that second thing that made me say, yes, let's go get it. But one of it was the longevity of Bodeborg. By the time I had run into it, it had already been surviving for 10 years. While being sort of managed. <sighs> While being very poorly managed and poorly built and poorly everything. <laughs> it was terrible. <laughs> and so this is critically important to the decision we made. I honestly sat back one day and said, there is no way this should be alive. This should be dead. Mm -hmm. There is a company called Nagone in Spain. I don't know if you know Nagone. If you're, I have not heard it. of Nagone. So Nagone was a brother-sister team who made a ton of money. They had developed some kind of a software. I don't really know what it did. They sold it to Yahoo for half a billion dollars. And they developed this thing that tried to copy questing, so to speak, but it had 40 challenges in a row and they were using RFID. They had really made this mammoth Python of a thing that was so long. And it had all kinds of high tech and bells and whistles and it failed miserably, went bankrupt. We've seen that happen over and over again. But Bodeborg, even in its worst state, continues. And that was impressive. What do you think is the secret sauce? Well, <laughs> and I don't want to get too much into that, but let's just say that if we did have a firm mission statement, like a large corporation would, it would be something along the lines of, we keep humans human. So this sounds a lot like the soundbite that I have been giving reporters who have called to get information on escape rooms for really the last eight years. I always tell them the same kind of thesis statement, which is that in a world gone digital, doing things in real life is bizarrely revolutionary. It sounds like that's the space you're looking to play in. Yeah. You know, this is where I diverge strategically. I am not a strategic believer that we are going to one day live in a ready player one world. I just don't think that's going to happen. I agree with you. We're not designed that way. It's not our plight in life as humans. I honestly believe there are billions and billions of dollars going into this notion that virtual reality is going to be the next big gaming platform. And it's been happening for almost 50 years, all that money going into that space and not much has come of it. And I understand why Zuckerberg spent the 2.3 billion for the technology that went into developing Oculus Rift and now Oculus Quest, I guess they call it. And by the way, I think that technology is amazing. I think it's just incredible when you put that headset on. 
But there's no way that I believe that's going to turn into a meaningful, growing gaming platform that's going to generate billions. I just don't believe it. I think that it's going to be reality-based. And I think that it's not going to be puzzle-based. I think it's going to be task-based. I think it's going to be human-based. I think it's going to be based on us, our desire to want to be and do things like James Bond and Indiana Jones or Laura Croft or even the waiting to exhale people, whatever. It's That's why we watch movies. That's why we read books. It's why we watch TV shows. We subliminally want to know, want to do those things. And we haven't had the courage to do it. Our little boy, our little girls, our little kids, and even the young adults in us have been muted. And I intend to bring them very much back to life. I am very on board with that. Can you tell us about your current strategy for expansion? Go everywhere. Okay. At this point, it seems like you are dreaming very big, probably increasingly large is what it sounds like. Yeah. And I do dream big. That doesn't mean I'm going to try to go everywhere at once or instantly. I'm yes, yes, yes. You're, I can tell you are a very sensible, pragmatic person and the dream and the reality are, are always looking to find the right meeting spot. Yeah. We are ready to grow fast. That's good news. We are ready to grow fast today. I'm ready for it. Are you going to bring Bodoborg to the West Coast? Absolutely. Sure. Absolutely. <laughs> the issue for us in the growth is Bodoborg is, and I don't mind talking about this, Bodoborg is still very unfamiliar. So it's kind of like a strike one, so to speak. And the financial world doesn't like unfamiliar. Mm -hmm. I think that escape rooms, some of our colleagues, things that they're doing, you mentioned Five Wits, there's Level 99, of course, now, and there's other things like Activate Games. There's all kinds of stuff that are emerging today that were not here a decade ago. And that's giving more credibility to what we refer to as the reality gaming space. So that will help us in gaining some more familiarity. But most of those things are small footprint relative mm -hmm. to us. A Bodeborg location is typically at least 30,000 square feet and multiple floors. And so that is a complexity that, again, is perhaps not unfamiliar, but not necessarily desirable. Small footprint, things that can grow fast, don't cost a lot for real estate are more desirable, of course, to the yeah, financial you're not world. You're not talking about an escape room that has a few games and you're not talking about a theme park that requires gigantic investment that people fundamentally understand. You're talking about something that exists somewhere in an amorphous space between them. And as we mentioned earlier, these are the kinds of things that don't fit cleanly into the existing boxes and investors get nervous. For a little context, is 30,000 square feet, is that like the size of an old, like a Macy's would have been at a shopping center? Is that about the size, you know, two stories? Could be. I think many shopping stores like that, companies might be more in the order of 50,000 square feet, perhaps. <laughs> that might be more like it. A large grocery store is anywhere from 70 to 100,000 square feet, typically. Okay. Just so I could wrap my head around the size. <laughs> and it's not just the 30,000 square feet. We do it on two floors at least. We are reality and reality exists in three dimensions. And so mm -hmm. this is an easy thing for us to understand the value of. It's a difficult thing for investors because it's easier to push single floor. So it is a deliberate decision that you are punching through ceilings yes. when you are doing these things. Yes. Okay. That was something that I knew existed in 
the Malden location, but I did not know whether that was inherent to the concept or something that just worked out in that building. So you, I love your description, punching through floors. I never heard that before. <laughs> Multidimensional. That's key because that's how we remember. This is tracking how we live life. So yes, we are going to be three-dimensional. We don't have to punch through a floor. There are other ways we can achieve it. But a typical single floor facility won't have the ceiling height that we need. Mm -hmm. And so we don't follow the path of least resistance. And that's perhaps strike two for us. So unfamiliarity, strike one, not following a path of least resistance, strike two. And then frankly, and honestly, I'm strike three because I have done everything counter to my business training in holding on to keeping and taking a very deliberately slow flywheel path to building Baltimore. And I've done that quite intentionally because it would have been easy. We had so many offers for me to say, let's change our offering to fit that mold that the financial community wants versus expanding and evolving the model that our guests absolutely love and flock to us for. The smart executive might have gone the path of least resistance and changed to raise the money. I didn't. And so I'm strike three because I didn't conform. So PG, when I find the investor group, whomever he, she, or they might be, that sees this vision and understands it and is willing to, yes, we can reshape things. We can evolve things. We can experiment with things, but let's not move away from what our guests love. When I find that we're going to grow very fast. I support you in this endeavor. Yeah. I really respect the approach and the philosophy that's underlying your decision-making process. As someone who historically doesn't always do things in the easiest way possible, out of concern for the experience and for creating the optimal user or guest experience. I really respect it. Thank you. I have a question. I am guessing that your answer is going to be some form of non-answer, but I'm going to, I'm going to ask it anyway. Okay. While doing my homework for this episode, I found a January 2020 article about Bodeborg opening in the Palisade Center Mall which was the mall of my teenage years. I am aware that January 2020 was a very different world, but I'm still going to ask, is that going to happen? Maybe. Okay. I will take a maybe. I want to change gears just a little bit before we wrap this up. In your free time, you're a baseball umpire for the California Interscholastic Federation. Yes, I am an umpire in high school, but I also umpire college, various levels of college. What's an unexpected skill that you've had to develop to become a good umpire? That is a great question. How an umpire moves is important. How we navigate a field physically, whether it's running, walking, how we make a call, the fluidness, the style, the timing, the timing is so critical of when and how we make a call and our use of eyes and hands and the veracity or lack thereof with which we make a call are all critical. It's like a choreography. And then you can umpire a game with just one umpire, which is if you're a high school umpire, then if you're doing freshman JV games, you might be by yourself. You get to the varsity level, the lower varsity levels, maybe two umpires are on the field. And then 
the level where I work now is typically three, sometimes four umpires. It's like dancing a tango. And so working with your partners and knowing what they're doing, knowing how to react to what they do right or wrong, all of that's important. So it's a really deep dive in understanding the, the, the process. Nonverbal of, communication yes. and communicating with tone and movement and timing. And that's really interesting. And I didn't know what answer I was going to get out of that, but I, I love that answer. Oh, David throwing a curveball. <laughs> yeah, it's a big curve. I just umpired two games yesterday. And what's it like when you umpire a game on a professional baseball diamond? Does it change the way you're doing it? No, ball fields are exactly the same dimension. That's the beauty of it, right? The dimensions of the bases relative to one another never changes. Beyond that, is there a change? Is it like an emotional difference? Or is it just business as usual? I might be the wrong guy to ask that question because for me, the answer is no, it's a baseball field. And once I get out there, I'm focused on the game. I'm not very interested in who's in the audience and I'm interested in what's happening on that field. And am I doing my job with my partners correctly? So I've umpired at Angel Stadium. That's the only professional field that I've umpired at. I have some colleagues who've been to Dodger Stadium, for example, since I live here in Southern California. I have some partners who have done Petco Park down in San Diego, but mine, I've part numerous games at Angel Stadium and I love it. It's a fantastic stadium. They are fastidious about the care, the grounds crews. My God, so much respect for those guys and how they treat and care for that type of a stadium and the engineering that I'm an engineer by academic background. So the engineering that goes into the ground and the grass <laughs> and even the dirt part, my gosh, it's amazing. So a lot of respect for that, but no, for me, a baseball field is a baseball field. The only thing that really changes on a baseball field is sometimes the foul territories are different sizes. Some mm -hmm. can be very narrow, some can be very wide, and that can change how you think about the game as an umpire. And the backstop, what's behind me, how far back that is. In a professional field, that can be pretty far, right? You're going to punish a pitcher who throws a wild pitch in professional baseball. So you make that backstop very deep. Where in oh. high school, the backstop might only be a few feet from me, which is kind of weird. Okay. I never thought about how the difference and how forgiving that can be or punishing. That's interesting. We like to spread the love a little bit. So what are some of your favorite games or experiences that you did not help create? In the escape room world, I'm a big fan of things like The Basement in Silmar. California. I'm a mm -hmm. huge fan of something like that. And it's the kind of thing I look at and I go, you know, they're kind of creative. Could we even contribute to that? Could my team contribute to taking that sort of delivery to the next level? So yes, I've taken my friends, my family to those kinds of things. And I enjoy that kind of experience. Haven't been to activate games, but it's certainly on our radar. We certainly kind of like their focus and what they're doing with sort of the origin of video game focus, so to speak. There are all kinds of things out there. Have you heard of Coesio? No. no. <laughs> so Coesio is out of France and I think they have more than a couple of handfuls of locations now. They're somewhat of, I don't know how to describe them. They certainly aren't anywhere near questing and they're not single rooms like a level 99. They're more of a obstacle course ropes sort of thing. There's Prison Island. We've done that, of course. Prison Island, they used to be called Aros Fortet. They're from Sweden originally and their origin, and they're not going to be happy with me for what I'm about to say, but their real origin is they were trying to copy us. 
<laughs> without copying questing. So they would basically steal our ideas and for each individual challenge and try to incorporate them as single challenges in their venue. That didn't work so well as Artist Fortit. So they changed their name to Prison Island and they are, it's fun. They've made each room, if you will, like a prison cell on the outside as a theme. But when you walk in, it could be anything happening. It's that you and a team of people have to conquer and then you leave and you can come out and do the next one. So that's okay. But the things like Mr. X in Shanghai are, um, if they changed the name, and he was your guest. What was his name? Chris something. Chris Latner. Chris Latner, his vision, that kind of thing. I'm all in. When you are traveling in the future, feel free to reach out to us because we will happily point you in the direction of things that are playing in those spaces. Excellent. Thank you. David, what comes next for you in Bodeborg? Expansion. Are you thinking expansion globally or are you looking into opening a few more locations here in the U.S.? Yeah. So when we acquired Bodeborg, we knew that the goal was global expansion. That is the goal. If we didn't see that, if we didn't see that this could have been a two to three billion dollar company, we would never have bought it. So that is our vision. However, our expansion, when we are able to ignite it successfully, once we have the capital that we need, will be far more strategic. So we're not going to just go any and everywhere when we first start. There'll be a strategic design and direction to that. Okay. And where can people find you on social media? Bodeborg.com. And if you were to go to Instagram or Facebook, you will find that most of our locations have a presence there under their name. David, thank you so much for joining us. This has been an unexpected and enlightening journey through Bodeborg's history and your history. And I can't wait to see where you take this business. Me either. <laughs> the Reality Escape Pod is produced by Lisa Spira, edited by Steve Ewing of Stand Inside Media, and brought to you by RoomEscapeArtist.com, your home for well-researched, rational, and reasonably humorous escape room and immersive gaming content and events. Hi, folks. It's that time again. You know, the one where we ask you to back us on our Patreon. Now, I know that everyone has Patreon request fatigue. I have it too. And I know that you're used to hearing that it takes a lot of work to make this content and that the money goes a long way. But it really is true. All of the things that we're doing take a lot of time, a lot of effort, a lot of money. And the support that we get from our Patreon community is invaluable. If you have the money available and love what we're doing, please do consider backing us on Patreon. It means more than I think you realize. Thanks. If you have been enjoying the content on Reality Escape Pod, David and I would really appreciate a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcast or Spotify. It really goes a long way towards helping us market the podcast and growing this podcast. We'd like to take a moment to thank our highest tier sponsors, Derek Tam, Breakout Games, Jonathan Driscoll, Pat Tupin, Rex Miller, Paula Swan, Scott Olson, and Byron Delmonico. I'm going to go all the way back to 
July 7, 2007, that first visit to Odeborg Oxalisum that I previously described. And there was another pivotal moment in that experience when after we had gotten rid of the long blonde haired guy named Manet and we were questing on our own and we thought we had figured this thing out, we knew what we were doing. Of course, we were failing everything, but we were having fun failing. And so one of the takeaways is Bodeborg sells failure, right? Most people don't get that. And that's another one of those things that scares investors. What do you mean you sell failure? You can't do that. But of course we do. That's what we sell and it works. So what happened on that day was my family of six were staying together. Now, we don't do that today at Bodeborg. Six is too many inside of a quest. So it's three to five, but we stayed at six. So that means my wife and I, adults with four kids, a 20-something-year-old daughter. And then the next age, there's a seven-year gap between my oldest daughter and our next. She's the 13-year-old who was going ah, over this guy named Manet. So I've got a 13, an 11, and a 10-year-old. And we're having this great time, so I think. Eventually... My oldest son, his name is Kefren. He's the anointed representative for the young side of the family. He comes to myself and my wife, Azrina, and he goes, Mom, Dad, we have a proposition. Proposition? You're 11. What are you talking about? <laughs> Learning from his dad. <laughs> we think it's time for us to separate from you. What are you talking about? Sabina, Taj, and I would like to go questing on our own because you guys are too old and too slow. <laughs> <laughs> and, and he was very good. They were wonderful. I love the way they positioned it because they said, look, we know we're in the middle of Sweden. We know you'd never let us separate from you, but we're in this building. We can't go out. They'll never let us out. Just go downstairs and make sure that they never let us out. You know we're going to be inside of here, so there's nothing to fear. We'll be right here somewhere. And we kind of looked at each other. We were sad because they wanted to leave us. <laughs> but then we said, okay. That was another one of those moments that I thought, wow, this thing, whatever it is, my goodness, it's got a lot of power. 